please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is Losing the Plot with David Stavinger, Sam Twyford-Moore, Helena Fox and Quinn Eads. That was fantastic. Didn't have to say anything, just a hush. That's the power of the writers I have with me right now whose books you're just going to go out and buy four copies of each automatically after as a suggestion because I'll just keep saying that you're going to be buying the books four, four copies each. First of all, I'd like to really uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation on whose land we are now about to do this panel on and to elders past, present and emerging and... From my perspective, First Nation writers always uh, come first. And if there's any First Nation writers or people in the audience, you're very welcome. I'd also like to acknowledge anyone both on stage in the audience and just generally with a lived or living experience of mental health or mental illness. Um, thank you for, for being here as part of this. And um, I'd also like to acknowledge those that are no longer with us who've had that experience as well. I have three magnificent human beings on stage here uh, today. To the far right, Helena Fox, who is a teacher's writing uh, based in the Illawarra and has had this amazing debut book come out for young adults, but it's for anyone really, How It Feels to Float. And this is an incredible, incredible novel about um, grief, loss, adolescence, bullying and staying here, staying here regardless of what's going on. So please welcome Helena uh, to the panel. And in the middle we have Sam Twyford-Moore and he's at the end of his long tour for this incredible book, uh, The Rapids. It's been a slow tour for a fast book. Um, Sam's uh, was the director of the Emerging Writers Festival, uh, runs the Rereaders uh, podcast, has been heavily involved in the Australian literary scene for a while. As someone myself who has bipolar, this is this this I started to disassociate, took my breath away, stopped me in my tracks, probably had transference as well. Sorry, Sam. Um, <laughs> If you've got bipolar, read this. If you don't have bipolar, read this. It's, it's so much more than a memoir. It's really a, a series of cultural essays on how, and I prefer, like Sam, manic depression has presented itself in the arts. So please welcome Sam to the panel. Um, by the way, it's really strange, but all their covers are kind of blue, which I think... I was looking at it and I thought I was hallucinating in bed. I was like, what's going on here? Because I never get paranoid. Um, this magnificent human being here is um, Quinn Eads, who is a, an amazing human being, an amazing artist, one of Australia's greatest poets, truly. Uh, this book here with the blue cover is Rowling, which you should go and buy four copies of afterwards, straight away. Uh, Quinn 
He is also the author of this book here, All the Beginnings, A Queer Autobiography of the Body, and somehow managed to find time to edit Going Postal more than Yes or No, which was about two years ago when the vote, uh, this came out a year ago, a year after the actual uh, vote occurred as well. And um, can you please welcome Quinn? It's the, uh, his final session. Welcome, Quinn, please. I thought I'd ask uh, just a, we're going to hear some readings, excerpts from each of the writers here, their work, and I've got some specific questions. But I thought I'd start by asking when you hear the term lived experience, which has become the sort of you know, language is very important and mental health is very important in writing. You know, when you hear that term lived experience, what does that mean for you both personally and in your own practice? So I guess all of my writing practice is around lived experience. I, I, want, I had someone recently in a panel at a local library ask me um, when I was going to use my imagination and stop. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd already written one autobiography and... <laughs> You know, so for me, life writing is a deeply imaginative um, It's a, and I write from my experience. So sometimes I'll be feeling a bit blocked or like I'm, I'm not writing and, um, and then I, something happens. I have to bury my father's ashes or <laughs> have another diagnosis or, you know, something happens and I go, oh, that's right, I needed to live. I needed to live this five or seven or nine days in order to write what was happening. So... Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but lived experience is core to my practice and it's also core to how I think about hearing from other people and hearing their stories. That's a, that's a really strange response, response, isn't it, that you can't uh, use the imagination or pull out of sort of autobiographical detail when you're writing the lived experience in first person, that that's, that's the constraint, you're limited to almost fact, like... Um, to me, it's like that's just full of all the possibilities of, of extending out and the idea of what truth is in that space. Is that is that your sort of take on the eye in poetry in particular when writing the lived experience? That's a quite expansive space to work in? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the genre, so the genre of memoir, um, some people talk about misery lit. Um, there has always been kind of traditionally aligned with um, in, internal stories Often it's often called a women's genre um, and actually if men write autobiography then they become exultantly famous. Um, who's the guy that wrote the interminable books? I've blanked on his name. Um, they're really fat. I think he's... No, well, there is David Foster Wallace, but let's not go there on that. Anyway, he's, he's, he's written these books that are like 800 pages. Nascout. Yeah. Nascout. Yeah, thank you. So he's become this kind of incredibly famous human for doing that. Yeah, Women have been writing memoir and autobiography for hundreds and hundreds of years and, and, it's, uh, and it's still called women's writing or it's not an interesting mm-hmm. story and that the I is somehow limited and limiting when we write from, from that space. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I've found that um, I didn't actually face my mental health issues until uh, I had my first child and I had to face it because I got quite serious postpartum depression. Um, And before that, I just was living and reacting and responding to the world and I didn't have words for what that, you know, how my my history uh, was affecting my mental health. I didn't really 
have a way of explaining my reactions to the people I loved. Um, and so I went quite reluctantly to get care um, with the encouragement of my, my husband and my sister. And I remember all the associated feelings of shame and failure and all of that. And um, I remember sitting in a room with people um, with all of that, you know, just all those feelings of, of, you know, the complicated feelings that you have when you first start to get care. And I sat in a room with all these other people and they opened their mouths and out came forms of my story. And I remember suddenly thinking, I'm not alone. I actually get to be a human being with these other human beings and we all are caring for each other. And that was really the beginning of me embracing and, and getting um, mental health care. And I continue to do that. So it's been about 20 years now. And, um, and I found that as I accepted more and more my own story and without pushing back, I found that um, it did come in more and more into my writing and I didn't set out, certainly with this book, I wasn't like, I'm going to write my, my own story. I, I wrote a story to the side of my story. But what was beautiful about that was that my, my, my story touched, kept touching and kept stepping in. And I guess my lived experience became, I think you called vulnerabil vulnerability your superpower, and which I adored. <laughs> And it became very empowering to think, I know exactly how this feels. I can write this into this book because I know all these different reactions that my character Biz is having. I, I have the authority of that. And so instead of it feeling like a weakness or a failure, it was like I have a way of, I, have, I do have a superpower. I get to put this into writing in some way. It was, it was really life-affirming, very healing experience for me to do that. Yeah, read, reading the the book and and being in the, the the room of the story with Biz very much, but I could kind of feel you just outside the room of the story. You, your your lived experience, you you and what you've been through out just outside that. It was a beautiful sort of kind of floated between, even though I was very much with Biz and her adolescent experiences with grief and disassociation. And yeah, mm. yeah, it definitely was. Biz was. I, I sometimes think of it as Biz walking alongside me and me walking alongside Biz. So we were basically telling each other, you know, I was telling her story and she was helping me tell mine. Yeah, you yeah. very much get that sense. Yeah. Uh, I'd say <clears throat> the lived experience term was really useful because it kind of felt like it broke big some point last year, quite close to my book coming out. So it was a useful framework uh, for me to think about what I was writing and putting out into the world, which wasn't, you know, a light work although it's got some levity in it um but for me it came from uh you know working in the arts sector before publishing this book and particularly working at the emerging writers festival where we had a responsibility and actively pursued um, really strong relationships within the disability community and within the deaf community and there was a mantra that kept on coming up um during my time there which was uh, the disability community in particular saying nothing about us without us and that must have seeped into me somewhere. And so this book was an attempt uh, for me within the specific kind of community uh, or diagnosis that I was sort of living in to, to try and claim back some of that space. And so to, to write, you know, a part memoir that is also a kind of cultural history of the illness um, 
was an attempt to claim that back from people who were writing about it without that experience. And I think that is across the board kind of happening in, um, you know, particularly quite strongly in Australian literature. Yeah, there's been a, uh, well, actually one point, one point in uh, the Rapids, you refer to a quote, I think it's something about, you know, um, bipolar being like a, like a disability of the mind. And I really love that, love that phrase, putting it in that kind of um, framework. But there seems to have been a big, yeah, a big shift in terms of writing the lived experience, like uh, all of your uh, work, and I think of things like *The Green Bell* by Paula Kia, which came out documenting her time in institution with the poet Michael Dransfield, and *Get Up, Mum* by Justin Hazelwood, about growing up in Tasmania with a mother who has schizophrenia. Well, what What do you think's changed? That there's a possibility about writing about the lived experience more. Uh, directly and also people that have had lived experience or living experience being the ones authoring those stories. What shift do you think has occurred in that space? I think there's a sense that, you know, one person goes through that door and by going through that door they allow you to go through it next. So for me it was um, Fiona Wright, the poet and, um, and a good friend of mine who started working in memoir and nonfiction and wrote a book about her experience with anorexia called Small Acts of Disappearance, which came out... 2015 when I was you know starting to think about how I would do something similar and yeah I mean Fiona's act in publishing that book was hugely generative for a number of younger younger writers myself included um and you know and she's really now in a mentor role for for a number of um mostly women who are who are writing these memoirs and you know that that's that's writing's never a passive role that's an extremely active position to take and to be quite um, thoughtful about what the cultural impact of what you're doing is. Yeah, I think I don't know if there's anything that I could pin it to other than um, I think it all begins when you do start to hear other people tell their stories. And so it might have started for me in that room um, with those others and then just, I don't know, just maybe just feeling that when you're around people who care for you, I've found that if I open my mouth and say I'm, I'm not well or I'm having a tough time, I have been fortunate enough to have been met with love. And so it, I have felt that I can tell the story and so I've been very upfront about, about my mental health story, um, including with my young students. And you can see their eyes kind of widen when I say my psychologist or, um, you know, anything to do with my own mental health. I don't go into detail, obviously, because it's, you know, they haven't asked in detail, so I don't volunteer my entire story. But I know that I've seen other people share their stories and have that be embraced. And so I've just almost stepped in going this I don't know if it's that I can assume I'll be met with love. It's just I just feel that I've seen a lot of stories be met with love and so that it's okay to keep stepping forward into that space. But I couldn't pin it to a particular thing. I just feel it's happening more and more and more. Yeah. It's being embraced in a very different way rather than a kind of curiosity and who's getting to author them and um, there's a, there seems to be a more intimate space for people to kind of uh, write in that. Um, Sam, in your book at one stage you say, do I want this illness as such a stated and clear part of my identity? What are your thoughts collectively on that as a writer? I know myself, you know, I've become known a bit as a, like the mental illness poet. 
And someone called me that the other day, which I was like, well, that's fucking limiting. Um, it's hard enough to sell poetry. Um, you know, and, and we're here on a mental health panel, so in for, in, to a degree we're reinforcing that identity. To, what, are, what are your thoughts about that? Do I want my identity attached to a diagnosis as a writer? I mean, I've been thinking about that for a long time. I remember my grandmother saying to me when I was about 20, uh, don't, don't end up on the gay and lesbian shelf, dear. So there, <laughs> <laughs> there's always, um, you know, there's always been that consideration, I guess, about was I going to be on the LGBTI shelf? Or am I on the trans? Am I in the trans section now? Am I in the mental health section? Um, I like to be confusing with genre, so <laughs> I'm quite glad about that. Um, <laughs> but it, it is a it's it's a risk, uh, and it's a risk for me particularly because I am uh, I have shared parenting of two primary school age children. And I'm a queer trans person with a mental illness. So every time I choose to be out about particularly the mental illness stuff um, and sometimes the trans stuff because of the way I get read, my masculinity gets read as predatory or overly sexual or problematic. Uh, But the mental health stuff then uh, and particularly all of the attachments, the cultural and social attachments that come along with bipolar, which mean, oh, I am unstable, I'm unable to care for my children properly, the things are that attached to excitement, like I feel suddenly I'm unable to be joyous or really excited about something because it's elevated mania. Yeah, you're in an elevated mood. Um, and so I, I get worried about the effect for my kids, actually, um, when I'm out about my mental health status. But I also know that uh, as long as I'm open about this stuff, other people can find me and we can have conversations and that um and that's happened a few times in my writing life where someone has just sent me a message saying I've just read this and it had this impact or it did this for me and um I will never not do that I will never not write that hard stuff or open myself up in that way because when we hear other stories and we connect with them it actually saves we save each other's lives um, often without knowing it, but that's what happens. Yeah, I, I just completely agree with that. And, you know, like I've had experiences where um, much earlier than the book I'd published a small essay about um, some of this stuff and, you know, someone said, oh, I read the essay and then everything clicked and they went and sought a diagnosis and it was, you know, bipolar. So um, that that effect is is more meaningful than, you know, any of those market forces that put you into a certain pocket or... Or you know, and and professional or reputational risk um, that go with it, and the kind of stigma that you can experience by stepping a bit out and going, look, this has been my lived experience. Um, that's the trade, but you know, you wouldn't not do it. I guess, yeah. I completely agree with the saving of lives, um, including my own. Um, just the way that uh, writing has been such a such a lifeline for me and to get to write about in any way my story is has been um a way of staying a way of making my mark and looking and going I'm here I'm here it's true that this is real I'm here in this moment and so um definitely sometimes I look at at people and I think oh how do you see me do you see me as as broken do you see me as um less than because I live with these things 
but then I think um, it has to be of benefit to to share those those moments where um, you are you might have fallen and you're working to get back up um, because there's nobody I know who isn't working to get back up. So, and the and the messages I've received from readers have been very similar. Of how did you know? How did you know that? How did you put that into words? How I've been feeling, and certainly people living with complex PTSD um, specifically have reached out to me, and and also because my book um, touches on issues of also sexuality, um, I've really liked hearing from those readers as well. So I, you know, it's a story not just about, um, not just you know what I mean, but it's not. Um, it touches on grief, it touches on mental illness, it touches on sexuality, it touches on being a young person today. And so if somebody was to look at me, they, they might also say, oh, you also wrote a love story about, you know, a, a girl and her family, or you, you wrote a story of connection and a story of what it's like to ask for help and get it, you know. And so I feel like we've all written more than just, just uh, a mental health story we've written something that's so nuanced and empowering for so many people oh it's absolutely agree. totally get that from all your work that's just an aspect that's just part of the the frame of reference you you, you're working within um quinn i was wondering if you could read your poem about um yeah bipolar and parenting and perceptions of parenting uh, which you just talked about because i really related to aspects of this it's an incredible a uh, new piece which is coming out in Australian Poetry Journal, the Dis, uh, Disability Edition. Uh, yeah, and if you like Australian poetry, Australian po- uh, reading Australian poetry, Australian poetry, the organisation is amazing. Their membership's pretty cheap uh, and you get four journals a year, I think, full of amazing Australian poets. This poem is called What We Don't Say. They say... It was when you were on the sleepy pills. Remember that time I was hungry and I told you and you said, there are some suitcases in the cupboard, you could eat those. And I say, I don't remember. Or I say, I half remember. And they don't laugh. And I say, I was very tired. Or I say, I'm so sorry, I was sleepy for all that time. And we don't laugh. And they say, you were. Late for school every day, toast in the car, wet wipes on the dash for Vegemite smears, for honey orbs, on thighs, on noses, on cheeks. Both of you running, long hair tangling the wind, backs tilted, school bags banging after the bell, after the roll, absence marked hard by a sure hand, a red pen. They say, I miss you, and I say, I'm here, or I say, I know. And I say, I love you. Remember my own mother, teeth too big, lips drawn back, sending us to the shops for champagne with a handwritten note. I give permission for my daughters to a signature, a phone number, our walk up Marrickville Road, the note, the sunstroke footpath, brown frangipanis, a cicada shell cracking. And the woman at the shop called her reluctantly handed the cold bottle over, followed us half the way home. Remember handing the bottle over, brown paper bag creased, green glass sweating, the way she slurred the word Minchinbury, while she laughed and poured yellow in the cup, in the table, in the couch, such good girls, her wet and too long kiss on our lips. 
in the couch, under the chair, over the bed, wet wipes, brown and honey yellow in pockets, slow blood, shallow breaths, left eye closed more than the right. I send you a photo, you say, you look tired. You say, I miss you, and I say, I can't wake up. Or I say, can you come? Or I say, I'm sorry. Recycling blue trackies, yellow T-shirts, scrubbing at stains at milk-worn patches, sticking torn knees together with glue dots, a needle too fine for a shaking hand to thread. The psychiatrist insists on this everyday fog. I say, I can't wake up. I say, we're always late. The other parents are looking at me sideways. The washing is a cloth monster. It smells like moths. The kids can't get to me. I can't get to the kids. The fence has fallen. The dogs is escaping. There is shadows on my eye corners. The cicada is a shell under my shoe. My knees is cut open. I can't feel my pulse. The night I heard a far cry. Mama, mama, mama. Rolling over, sleep, a ditch, a drain, a woolen wet mask. Mama. Stretching out an arm, how long has he been standing there? How long at my bedside? How long at this edge? My tummy hurts, holding his own middle. Pulling him towards me, that one arm, a limb for him to crawl along, heavy enough to hold his weight. He doesn't say, remember that time I was sick and I couldn't, you wouldn't wake up and I vomited in bed. They don't say, we were late every day, you were always asleep, the bread was stale. They don't say, we miss you even when we are with you. Glue dots can't stitch a tear. I don't say. I pull them in, my arms a bit lighter, a bit wider, wide enough to hold, to circle them both, hope they don't remember. Scrape the glue dots off with a yellow nail, a crying eye, a tremor voice, a shaken head. Keep a soft voice, hold a cicada shell, Gentle fingers curled around the brown. When you sent me that uh, poem the other day, um, first thing I thought was, fuck, that's really long to read at a panel. <laughs> but then my second thought was, no, this has to be read because I just so related to the, um, there was a line in with the sideways, uh, was it? The parents uh, look me sideways. And I just knew that, that moment, turning up and feeling like the crazy parent picking up my own son. And it's something, Sam, you talk about as well, you know, being identified as the one with bipolar, the one with an illness, and also the acts that can occur when unwell, um, the idea of shame in this space. How how do how did all of you address that? I suppose through your writing, and what's your sense of how shame kind of shapes how you're able to write about those experiences? I make myself write shame um, in order to start unpicking what shame is. Um, and to start challenging the idea that I need to have shame about it because I, I think shame is something that's put on to us. It's something that we learn um, and it's about what we think is the gap between our own behaviour and what, what is the socially prescribed way of living or being. Um, and so I know that my shame is not my own. 
Um, and so by writing it, I can start putting some distance into there. By reading it aloud, it's a similar technique. It's, it's going, okay, well, this is, yes, this is reality. This is the lived experience when I'm in a mental health, when my mood's really, really low and I've got children and I have to care for them. And then if we can all, if we all do that kind of work, instead of maintaining the illusion that none of this is going on and we're all turning up with packed lunches at school and everything's fucking fine, (laughs) then, um, you know, it starts to get easier and the shame diminishes is what I hope. That that piece, like days that I've been able to get out of bed for days with with my son, that lifted some of my shame knowing you and and you writing directly to it. Like it really, I was like... That is so relatable. I'm, I don't need to feel ashamed of. That's just part of it. And sort of, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, and that—that's the work of writing, right? Absolutely. And that's the work of reading as yeah. well. When we get to read, totally, yeah. totally. Uh, you've written about this uh, a lot in, in the rapids. What, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I think shame's a, shame's um, definitely part of it. Uh, for me, I was writing it quite soon after a pretty severe mm. uh, episode. And so it was, a, it was a complicated space to write in some ways, but it was a useful space because, you know, there was a lot to unpack and write about. And I suppose for me it was, you know, this is an illness that does have elements of extremely antisocial behaviour. Yeah. Uh, and part of it for me was unpacking my own antisocial behaviour and how that had impacted other people because and, – and looking within that towards accountability – and it's really hard because it's like, well, I'm not myself, um, but that doesn't lessen the impact that that's had on other people. And this, you know, was a process after the book came out of thinking about a lot of this stuff and, you know, talking about it. And um, and part of the book is also, you know, looking at other cultural figures and kind of the cultural history. And it was, and I've read, you know, almost every um, sort of general nonfiction and kind of um, some medical kind of text that you can find on it. And there's so much stuff about individualized um, narrative and you know the the one person's experience and you know and we kind of know the narrative around how people recover individually, but there is nothing on community repair and how to fix um, you know some really broken things that can come out of this. So that for me was I could only ask that question. I couldn't answer it because you know again it's an individual written response, but that's something that I wanted to throw out there. Like what is our responsibility as a community when some of this stuff happens? Yeah. I love that about your book. The fact that you, you acknowledge that aspect of, of, of mania and the, you know, the damage it can cause in different spaces using different public and cultural figures. And also saying, you know, this is uh, only part of the story part of the story too there's someone else's experience of this like the way you frame it it, it's not in any way trying to make like you're highly accountable in this book highly vulnerable and i thought of times that i've had you know uh different episodes and things i've done and and again it sort of just unpacked that to go that's that's actually part of it we have to acknowledge um i was just wondering if you could read um there's a section and I'll come to the form of these books because it's Sam's books are written in these great short fragments, which also kind of strike this to me very, I don't like using the term, but kind of bipolar rhythm to me, uh, but they kind of stitch together as a whole. Um, and I love this, the heightened senses and some of the aspects of mania. So there's a section on page 38 that goes to No More Parties in LA. I was wondering if you could read that uh, section there. 
Yeah, sure. This is really fun. Um, I, I didn't know which section David was going to get. I didn't tell Sam. <laughs> which sort we of did this as a sort of like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I might not have read this for like two years or something. Um, and it sort of speaks to the jukebox quality of the book, I guess. So who knows what I'm about to read. Um, During this time, nature thrummed in front of me. Everything I saw heightened somehow, as if someone had turned the colour up on plant life or my eyes had been returned to, to see more sharply. I couldn't stop thinking about photographs of flowers on my camera phone. I would genuflect on hot asphalt in front of pedestrian blooms to get the right shot. So it was little wonder that I was ecstatic in silty river water overseen by spindly trees in a bush setting. It was as close to religious ecstasy as I'll ever get. God, if one existed, could not invent a way of touching your soul in such a deeply felt way. I was sitting naked on a rock when a flyer tried to creep. The question made me read this bit. When a flyer tried to creep into my foreskin. Surely a sign from a higher power. In the photographs which Weeds sent me, Weeds is a friend of mine who's a photographer, I am nude except I am wearing a pair of sunglasses. I eventually submitted a mock-up of the book to the Australia Council for the Arts in the hope of receiving funds to produce and distribute the book myself. This was my insanity. I'm glad they didn't give me any of the money. I would have spent it too fast on things unrelated to the project, very likely a flight to Los Angeles. Only trouble there, no more parties in LA. Big round of applause. Um, there's, there's hundreds of excerpts I could have chosen And I didn't choose it for the uh, fly under your foreskin Though I did That image did stick with me After reading it But what I loved about that Was it distilled down to The delusions of grandeur um, A lot of time people with mania And I've had this Feel this incredible heat And a desire to be naked I, I did a TEDx talk And I don't remember this There's a photo of me outside the venue Naked with just sunglasses on and I often would strip clothes off and walk on cars and things like that. And um, you open with Jason Russell and, and that, that need to sort of remove uh, clothes and that idea that our ideas are kind of of this magnitude that you Australia Council of the Arts. And there's many examples of that through, through the book. When you, when you look back on like everything contained in that short little excerpt now, what, looking back on that, what you've documented there, what, what, what do you see? What do you feel? Uh, well, the shame word probably comes back into it. I'm glad that I did deal with shame a little bit. Um, I now have this mental image of you and I walking past each other naked with, sun- <laughs> with sunglasses on going, hi, David, hi, Sam. Yeah. Um, There's still the rest yeah. of the night. There's the I, rest of the night. It's all good. I, it's wall and gone. No, it's I, cool. And I walk past and I go, oh, he, do- he doesn't look well. And you walk past and go, oh, he doesn't seem too, too good either. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, that's... That's quite. I, I guess writing is quite a strange thing to do, really, because I don't really remember writing that. I mean, I remember it happening, um, but I, there was this sense, I suppose, of wanting to put in that that detail, and um, you know, it's pretty colourful, outrageous stuff. You know, well, I love it because you say in the book, you know, do we need another misery memoir? And I thought about that in some of my own poetry. I thought, oh fuck, it's easy to position yourself as like a a victim or to try to elicit empathy and I love in your book it's like you're trying to trying to stop it being a memoir more more cultural kind of overstudy of of um, mania in, in different cultural references from like Delmore Schwartz to uh, to films right through to Kanye West but within it there's these little really personal excerpts and I just thought that distilled mania and some of its key elements into like such a short fragment which is such takes a lot of skill to do that I've read a lot about mania, and I just that was uh, an amazing um, 
example. Actually, it just leads to another question. The idea of, um, you know, when you're saying, I can't remember writing that. What's your experiences? I found this myself, having had things like ECT and medication, the reliability of memory, like trying to draw on memory and document experiences or have you found pieces of writing and you go, I don't recall actually writing that? My hand up. <laughs> I've got something to say. Um, I spoke about this yesterday actually a little bit in that um, the majority of this book, certainly before it got picked up and then I did more edits on it, um, I'd say the majority of this book was written through an extended dissociative episode. It was a six-month episode that just deepened and deepened and I couldn't seem to shake it off. Um, and what I ended up doing was the, the thing that grounded me, I guess, through that was I had a writing practice, 9 to 12, 9 to 12, um, where I would just go and write this book. Um, and so it was almost like writing in a dream state and out, was come, out were coming these words. And there was a part of me that was switched on. Obviously, I was still parenting and I was running my workshops. It's really odd to think I was functioning at all. But um, I was able to note that I was writing words down and able to go, oh, I need to do a bit of research for this bit that I don't know. Um, but I have said um, before that I got to the end and I'd written this book and it was almost like looking up. It was just as I started to get better and um, it was around the summer and I remember going, hey, I wrote a book. You know, it was just kind of like, hey, well, okay, you've just had an absolutely shit six months in, in so many ways, but look what you did. You wrote a book. It was a really, um, so it was this really intense, dis, disjointed, foggy time of my life when, in fact, I wrote a book that has then got published. It's kind of surreal to think. Um, but that even is an issue that I have today is um, there's moments where I have to see it, have to see the book physically to know. That, like I went to America for um, a couple of reasons, but um, I saw my book in the shops and I wrote to, um, I wrote to my U.S. publisher and went, it's real <laughs> because it's really it's hard for me. It's a living object. Yeah, so um, definitely I, th I think I might have even just, oh, the memory part, just that sense of, how did I write this book when so much was foggy? And I think sometimes you just have to trust your writer's self that you can do this. You know, do you find, um, you know, you could be having a really tough time and outcome these words because they're what we have to write. We can't not. So yeah. I did it because I couldn't not. Yeah. Chicken Queen, in, in your poem, there's that line, the psychiatrist insists on this everyday fog. Like, I, I love that line. Like, trying to right from that or through that? How do you find that experience with, with memory and trying to capture those sort of document from that space? Um, yeah, I find it pretty tricky. I, and in fact, I, the example I have is that I, have, I was diagnosed with bipolar earlier this year and in the middle of my first kind of diagnosable manic episode, I guess, I actually called David quite late at night, I think maybe midnight, to get reception. I was like, country. <laughs> Kuma's dropping out and talking so quickly. It's just getting snippets. Yeah. Uh, and I, I felt like David was the person I needed to speak to the most in the world uh, because he would understand. He would understand as a creative person because I couldn't work out. I couldn't work out whether I was just like your pitch to the Australian Council was I having just these incredible kind of world-shaking ideas um, that were actually very important and part of my work. 
uh, or was there something really wrong? And so I had this sense of, I guess, being on a roller coaster in the dark. Maybe um, I felt like I was a um, tuning fork that was vibrating at a higher rate than everybody else and that I was receiving messages, not messages, I was receiving, I was communicating with um, some kind of spiritual power that sort of embodied itself in creative practice was what was happening for me. And I was writing, uh, I was handwriting, I got a notebook out and I kept trying to, and I was writing through it. And um, then I went to my doctor who I had been seeing for a decade and had asked her on and off over 10 years, do I have bipolar because my mother and my father and my grandfather have it. Um, and she was like, no, it's depression, you don't have bipolar. And then, and then I said, I'm writing all of this stuff. And she said, is it coherent? And I was like, yes, it's absolutely coherent. And she went, okay, I don't, you know, let's just see how you are. Maybe you're just having some big ideas. And then maybe two weeks later I let myself look at what I'd written and, um, you know, it starts quite coherent. But by the end my writing was unrecognisable, my, my handwriting. It was jagged and very large and almost like couldn't be on the page, you know, and there's these strange lists that I know make sense in terms of stories. It would be like ghosts, saucepan on head, grandmother, you know, and that was my um, breadcrumb trail for myself and this is the material I'm trying to work with at the moment poetically and it's exhausting and terrifying because uh, I almost don't don't recognise those, that writing or those notes and so the way I'm doing that at the moment is writing using the pronouns we, our and ours so that I can think about containing many um, and that I don't necessarily have to have a singular, non-unfractured uh, perspective and that it's okay to have those kind of splittings and, and, and hopefully then that comes back to the shame thing. So the tearing up is about I feel ashamed. I feel ashamed that I was so somewhere else that I couldn't recognise myself anymore. But if we let each other have those states and be kind to each other, and which means I can be kind to myself in that state, maybe it's less painful. And I don't know, I want to live in some utopia where you just go to a really beautiful space with a lovely garden and, and people tell you how amazing you are and give you really good food <laughs> and say, do you want a hug, you know, and it's all I'm right. I'm moving there. Yeah. <laughs> just, I'll go there. Um, I'm really glad you... Unfortunately, I was in a, like a major depressive episode, so I was like <laughs> in the opposite state, just like evident. But I love that you called me, and I remember that um, call. Actually, that reminds me of another uh, excerpt, uh, Sam. I was hoping you could read. Um, it doesn't involve your foreskin. This one um, <laughs> on page eleven, um, it starts with "Let's talk about talking," and, and I love this again. It, it's an amazing kind of take on on mania kind of when it starts to take full flight. Okay. Um, Let's talk about talking. The act of talking and over-talking feels as though it is both a symptom and a cause, both trigger and wound. After an interview for a CEO role during a mixed state episode, I ended up on the floor of my kitchen unable to move and unable to stop talking to myself by myself. After having spent an hour on the phone in a conference call for the interview, I tripped into the mixed state partly because I had to do so much talking. A mixed state is an extreme cycle of manic depression in which both mania and depression feature in a rapid looping succession. A change in this mental weather can take place in, the, in a matter of hours. There is a higher prevalence of... Um, I'll skip this bit. 
uh, given this severity, the fact that I managed to both apply and interview for a job during this uh, period is remarkable. I'm nothing if not high-functioning, as they say. Later, after not getting the job, I made recommendations for supporting people for whom accelerated speech and thought are something of a problem when you're asked to call on both those skills. That was for a disability organisation as well. So I was like, uh, we have to talk uh, because your interview practices, I don't think they're up to scratch for... <laughs> that term, the term, like the, the, the talking and talking on the floor afterwards, the interview, like that rapid pressured speech, but also the idea of high functioning in the arts... Um, does that that term? I, I always find that term a huge pressure. Like I've had psychiatrists tell me I'm I'm high functioning. Um, Sam, what what are your thoughts about that term as a writer? Like, is it is it a term you embrace or do you see it as sort of problematic? Does it allow for different possibilities? As, yeah, within the diagnosis, like it is problematic because functioning is high functioning, I suppose, and it doesn't allow for that kind of vulnerability to come through um, to say you know, high functioning is a projection of actually functioning and you might be, you know, chaotic and going through the severe um, aspects of the disorder behind the scenes, but you're just presenting as, as, as functioning. You're not actually functioning at all. So on a, on a personal diagnostic level, that's really, um, you know, problematic and, and quite dangerous um, from, a, you know, from, from the community and society sort of perspective. Within professional, um, you know, circumstances, double, triple, <laughs> quadruple that because the expectation on you to perform, particularly within the arts, the amount of work and hours and, you know, personal investment um, is, um, yeah, beyond taxing. I, I, you know, like I was running 11-day festivals in Melbourne, um, which I think I write this in the book, had... Um, by, by nature, almost like bipolar rhythms themselves. There's all this work in the lead-up uh, and then, you know, there's the crash afterwards when not much is happening. And, and publishing a book is kind of similar as, as well. It's like, you know, all this excitement and deadlines and then it's coming out and all this social ac uh, aspect of it and then it's like, and then you've got to, what do I do next, you know? So, um, yeah, the professional toll and, and this could go into a much bigger conversation about, how do we advocate for better support for people with um, lived experience of mental ill health in these environments, which they're naturally attracted to because they're creative spaces. Um, you know, it's part of our identity to work in those spaces, um, but they're un underfunded, you know, um, in some cases uh, I, would, I would use the word abusive. Um, you know, like it, there needs to be a bigger conversation around, around those spaces, yeah. I think that this idea of that, that, you know, people uh, in the arts or just generally we kind of now, you know, we used to kind of, I suppose, romanticise the destructive tendencies in, in mental health and literature and now there seems to be a, like a celebration of the high-functioning individual in the arts so that when someone who you write about, uh, you write about many cultural figures, but someone like Kanye West where they're, you know, palpably breaking down in, in public in different ways, that it's, it's, it's viewed very negatively, like he should be able to maintain this high-functioning state on stage, on TV, these sort of things. Um, do you think there's been a shift from that idea of romanticising the sort of destructive tendencies to we expect public art figures to keep to keep their shit together, basically, regardless of a known diagnosis? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I mean, Kanye is interesting. Um, 
you know, I mean, some of these figures that I write about are living in an irreal kind of space <laughs> anyway where, um, you know, some of these exaggerated behaviours are, are just part and parcel. Um, it's probably, um, you know, it's a fascination, fixation thing as well, you know, because there is an antisocial behaviour and kind of extremes of behaviour have an entertaining quality to them. You know, we can get obsessed by them um, and, uh, you know, fixate them on them in an unhealthy way as well because, yeah, because they're, you know, public ruptures uh, in a way uh, and I suppose it's, it's an attempt to inform and educate people, you know, particularly with bipolar, which is so misunderstood uh, and, you know, and the, and the mania side. Like as a culture, we're sort of like now pretty well equipped to talk about depression and kind of like we have a level of vocabulary that's, you know, not great but acceptable, um, you know, for talking about the experience and people who've lived with the experience. With mania and bipolar and, and you know, other kind of schizoaffective disorders, there's still not the right language or there's still not the right kind of um, understanding of what happens at that other end um, and how to behave, you know, when you're encountering that. Um, it's, it's, yeah, that's kind of the, the big cultural knot that needs to be untied. There's still a lot of discomfort about um, some of the acting out, sexually acting out, aggressive... Um, and I suppose also just the, d- the delusions of grandeur being seen as arrogance. There's yeah, there's a lack of understanding that, about that kind of florid um, state. I think another state that uh, Helena you write about so well in this book is being disassociative and and biz um, this adolescent who's gone through significant grief, significant bullying, being ostracized. There's this amazing uh, scene at the swimming pool where biz goes into a disassociative state, and it's captures it over a couple of pages so well. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading that. Yeah, that would be great. All right, so, yeah, she's in the swimming pool. Um, I might just do a little, the beginning. Okay. I'm at the indoor pool. I came here to do laps and have ended up on my back, limbs out in a star. Bridget, that's her psychologist, Bridget said to do exercise. It'll make a world of difference, Elizabeth. So I'm doing my best. I've done three laps and I'm having a rest. I've got the pool almost to myself. Because I'm not at school or at work or at anything at all, I get to swim with almost no one else. Today, a hairy, thick-necked man walks slowly up and down a lane, recovering from some heart bypass slash footy accident slash ladder fall. A lifeguard sits in her office reading the paper. Doesn't she worry we'll drown? Shouldn't she be at the poolside, gauging our moods, making sure we don't pass our tipping points and submerge? I suppose she thinks we're fine. Two large humans, one walking, one on her back like a dinghy, both dull, lazy, and completely reliable. Water's crinkling in my ears. I'm soaking and thinking about floating, thinking about water, thinking about being water when something flicks inside me, off to on, or would it be on to off, and I leave my body and turn molecular. I rise up. I'm above the water, above the roof of the pool, above the gym complex, above the neighborhood, the roads, the city, above the escarpment and the sea. 
I'm above the earth. I'm in space moving away. I'm going fast and the earth is receding and all I feel is bliss. Oh my God, it's beautiful. It's a crystal feeling, a ding, ding, dinging, everything coming into focus. Suddenly I get it, who I am, what I am, where and why. I am everywhere. I know everything. I am the universe. I have always been. How funny to think I was anything else. I never want this to end. Here is everything. Here I am. And a kid laughs. I open my eyes and a toddler cannonballs into the pool. My body, not body, rocks in the water. My face drips from the splash. I am back and not at all back. Here I am in borrowed bones, in makeshift skin, looking out of eyes that are a construct, breathing with lungs that are only a step, a basic rearrangement away from leaves. How funny to have a body when I am not a body. How funny to be inside when I am outside. I walk out of the pool and go to the showers. I stand in the shower and fall from the shower head onto myself. I pour into the drain, under earth, out into the ocean, spilling. I turn off the shower. From light years away, I rub the strange thing that is my body with the strange thing that is a towel. I pull on clothes, and they are the strangest things. People walk out of the gym, and they are such funny creatures, aren't they? But I am them, so here we are, in between death and death all of us spinning through space a trillion miles an hour. We are going so very fast. I stand at the bus stop, wind whistles past, cold and slick. The bus comes. I ride the bus. It starts to rain and water glides into water on the glass. I walk from the bus stop to my house, water inside, water outside, I am the rain, I will be the rain, I will be dead and I will be ash and I will be thrown into water and taken by the sky. The feeling of wanting to leave comes so suddenly I can't stop it before it hits. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Um, uh, please, I, I hate the way, I love panels, but I hate the way they kind of contract and constrain work down these small vignettes and which questions you chase and which ones you didn't ask. These are three incredible writers, incredible books. I actually can't, four copies each. I can't say that enough <laughs> to you. Please, please thank Helena, Sam and Quinn. Big round of applause. Like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival? Because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop. Or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals? Then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast. Or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world. <laughs>